Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Today, we'll be introducing a new series called Legal Lexicon. Our aim with this series is to take a deeper look at some of the fundamental legal concepts which are used in public discourse, but whose meanings are often taken for granted. We hope this series will provide a springboard for a more nuanced understanding of legal concepts that have shaped our social field, as well as a resource for law students to refresh their memory of the debates surrounding key concepts. Each episode will explore a distinct legal concept in conversation with academics and experts, providing an entry point into deeper understanding of these fundamental ideas. The concept we will be exploring today is the idea of parliamentary sovereignty. Sovereignty is a word we've heard a lot in recent years. The UK has a sovereign, her name is Elizabeth, and she lives for most of the year in Buckingham Palace. The UK Parliament is also commonly understood to be a sovereign. Indeed, one of the most talked about aims of Brexit was to take sovereignty back from the EU. But what does any of this mean? The Victorian constitutional scholar A.V. Dicey is often quoted for his pithy articulation of the traditional understanding of parliamentary sovereignty. He maintains that as a sovereign parliament, the legislator has the power to make or unmake any law. It therefore follows that, in theory, no court could strike down a piece of UK legislation. A critical question, therefore, is, is parliament able to bind itself? If parliament can do anything, make or unmake any law, can Parliament pass laws to limit its own power? In theory, the answer should be no. In practice, however, this idea is challenged. Joining us to help answer this and other questions about parliamentary sovereignty is Professor Aileen McHarg, who is a Professor of Public and Human Rights Law at Durham Law School. She publishes widely in the field of Scottish constitutional and administrative law, with works on the constitutional case for Scottish independence and the possibility of climate change becoming an issue for constitutional lawyers. She has a particular expertise in devolution and the UK's territorial constitution. So our first question today, um, Professor McCarg, is in our introduction, we did define parliamentary sovereignty as the ability for parliament to make or unmake any law. Is there anything you'd like to add to this definition? Yeah, so I think there's three elements to the traditional understanding of parliamentary sovereignty, which we sometimes call the Dicean version or the orthodox version. There's the first element that you said, Parliament can make or unmake any law it likes, so there's no substantive limits on the kind of legislation that it can pass. And you might contrast that with, say, the devolved legislatures, which do have substantive limits on their legislative competence. There's lots of policy areas they can't legislate on, they can't legislate contrary to uh, convention rights as well, for instance. So that's, that's one element. The second element which supports that first element is that no person or body has the power to set aside an Act of Parliament, and that means in particular that the courts cannot strike down um, Acts of Parliament on the grounds that they are invalid. And again, that contrasts with the devolved legislatures, where if they exceed their legislative competence, their Acts can be invalidated by the courts, and sometimes that does happen. 
And then there's a third element to Dicey's version of parliamentary sovereignty, which is also really important. And this uh, this is sometimes sometimes seems a little bit paradoxical because this is something that that Parliament cannot do, and the thing that it cannot do is to bind its successors. So it cannot, to use the technical language, it cannot entrench any particular act of Parliament or any particular subject matter against future amendment or repeal. And the re the reason for that is because Dicey thought that parliamentary sovereignty was continuing so that every parliament had exactly the same powers as its predecessors. So one parliament could attempt to bind a successor parliament, but the next parliament could repeal or amend that legislation. It wouldn't be bound by it. That's a really nice delineation and actually leads us on quite nicely to the role of the courts in sort of modifying and interpreting parliamentary sovereignty. So obviously parliament makes the laws, but it is the court's role to interpret them. And effectively, they have a say in how these laws can affect people. I wanted to get your thoughts. Does this mean that despite what parliament votes on, it can be ultimately the courts that decide what the law means? And then how does this interact with the parliamentary sovereignty definition that A.V. Dicey famously propounded? Dicey recognised that the interpretive power of the courts tempered the sovereignty of parliament to some degree. And this was one of the ways in which he reconciled his apparently contradictory view that the UK constitution had two fundamental rules, parliamentary sovereignty on the one hand and the rule of law on the other hand. These seem to be contradictory because if parliament's sovereignty is unlimited, it can legislate in breach of the rule of law. But, but Dicey thought that, that the role of the courts would, through interpretation, would help to protect rule of law values, at least to, to some degree. So, I mean, can these things be, be reconciled? I mean, I think there are two important questions here. So one, one is, how do the courts approach the question of statutory interpretation normally? So do they normally approach this as simply a question of trying to work out what Parliament actually meant when it enacted certain words? Or do they approach it as a matter of sort of conferring meaning on the words used by Parliament in the light of a range of background assumptions and values? And, and to some extent, of course, it has to be the latter process because Parliament's intention is Parliament's actual intention is not always clear. It may never have considered the matter. Uh, it's quite difficult to say that Parliament, which is obviously a collective body, has a single intention anyway. Um, so this has always been part of what the courts do. They've always engaged, they've always used presumptions of interpretation. They've always interpreted Parliament's words in the light of the values that they consider to be embedded in the law. So it's a strong protection for property rights, for instance. Parliament assumed not to intend to interfere with property rights. Parliament assumed not to intend to legislate retrospectively, uh, and so on. Now, I think what we've seen in recent years is that process becoming much more explicit and much more extensive for two reasons. One, as a result of certain statutory changes, so Human Rights Act being the obvious example under Section 3, 
uh, courts have to interpret legislation wherever possible in accordance with convention rights, similar interpretive duties in relation to EU law. But also, as a matter of common law, the courts have become more explicit about protection of fundamental rights and rule of law values through what they call the principle of legality. So they assume that unless Parliament makes its intention very, very clear that it does not intend to uh, interfere with rights or, or, uh, or rule of law values. So the, I think that's, that's one important part of this whole question. The other important part of whether we can reconcile the interpretive role of the courts with parliamentary sovereignty is what happens if the courts and parliament disagree on the meaning to be given to a particular statute. So the Dicean version of sovereignty would say, well, parliament retains the last word on the meaning of any question of law. Um, mm. An Australian academic called Geoffrey Goldsworthy said, well, that's basically what, what sovereignty means. Parliament uh, retains the last word on any question of law within the legal system. So Parliament, on the orthodox understanding, can legislate to reverse any judicial interpretation of its legislation that it doesn't like, or it can you know, completely replace common law rules with statutory rules. Parliament can do that, and we've got plenty of examples of that actually happening. But what would happen if either the judges, if either the judges insist on their interpretation of legislation, even in the light of, you know, apparently clear words being used by Parliament, or alternatively, what happens if Parliament tries to exclude the courts from the interpretive process altogether? And this is effectively what's been happening in relation to ouster clauses. So ouster clauses are clauses which attempt to prevent judicial review of government decisions in particular areas. We've got a process where Parliament tries to draft judge-proof ouster clauses and judges so far show themselves very adept at getting round and interpreting these clauses as not in fact excluding judicial review. We've got a couple of example, recent examples of even greater attempts to make even greater judge-proof ouster clauses. That's very interesting. So what you've got there is in trying to marry these two ideas that appear to be a little bit in conflict, you actually have a, a tug of war between the judiciary and the parliament in terms of these ouster clauses. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've had uh, a case a few years ago called Privacy International where there was a concern that there, there had been a judge-proof ouster clause. The Supreme Court said that it wasn't that it didn't wasn't effective to exclude judicial review but some of the judges made it quite clear that they simply would not accept an ouster clause so this would be the, the area where they would say actually there are limits to parliamentary sovereignty this is really interesting so i just wondered if we might dig in a little bit on your particular areas of of interest so you've looked at parliamentary sovereignty especially in the case of devolution and scotland and also you've written about the case for climate change specifically whether parliament can perhaps set long-term goals on that that would not in absolute effect but in essence bind itself i wondered if you can suggest have these changes or these breaks on parliamentary sovereignty increased or decreased since the publication of these works? So I think I would take these two things 
separately. So devolution, on the one hand, is entirely consistent with parliamentary sovereignty. So a sovereign parliament can do things, including set up other legislative bodies and empower those bodies to make legislation. And the devolution statutes appear to expressly retain Parliament's power to legislate in devolved areas. So on the one hand, devolution can be compatible with the traditional understanding of sovereignty. On the other hand, it challenges it in in a number of ways. So realistically, looking at the way in which devolution came about, certainly in its current incarnation, the origins and the the constitutional or political significances attached to devolution is, is really at odds with the idea that these are merely creatures of statute, that these were created and could be abolished. So here we have a sort of a political interpretation, butting heads with the legal principles. Right. Yeah. So that that's you know that's one way in which we can see a, a conflict. Another way in which we can see a challenge that devolution poses to parliamentary sovereignty is is on a sort of more normative level. So parliamentary sovereignty is usually justified on democratic grounds, and and there's a very nice dictum from Lord Hoffman in in a case called Banku Number Two, where he says. He says the principle of parliamentary sovereignty is founded upon the unique authority parliament derives from its representative character. Well, of course, its representative character is not unique. We have other representative bodies which exercise legislative functions. And and in the AXA case, the Supreme Court recognised that the, the democratic authority of the Scottish Parliament in that case was really equivalent to that of the UK Parliament. And so its, its legislation should be treated as having an equivalent status, albeit that it's not a, a sovereign a sovereign legislature. So we can see this sort of challenge to parliamentary sovereignty. And it looked like these were being this was being recognised in the 2016 Scotland Act, 2017 Wales Act, which put the Sewell Convention on a statutory footing and created a sort of referendum lock, so a provision stating that these devolved institutions could not be abolished except following another referendum. They were established following a referendum, so there would need to be another referendum to abolish them. Now, that looked interesting. That looked like it might be the beginnings of a shift in understanding, but I think my view would be post-Brexit and particularly post the first Miller case, that has kind of gone. That they, they you know, they, the Miller in Miller one, the Supreme Court held that the statutory recognition of the Sewell Convention had basically had no effect, um, and I think we would expect it to take the same view of the referendum laws. Yeah, this came up in our discussion. So you wrote a fascinating chapter in the wake of Miller one about how constitutional conventions, despite being political and not legal in nature, could nevertheless be. Uh, clarified by the courts in terms of how they interact with the rule of law and with sovereignty of parliament. I just wanted to ask you a specific question. What is the value of a court explaining how parliamentary sovereignty is limited in a political sense if the courts are unable to enforce such limits in a legal sense? Well, I think it is valuable. And I think, you know, it's worth remembering that there's no necessary contradiction between courts clarifying the meaning of rules of, or, or obligations, yet declining to enforce them. So, you know, that's in effect what happens at any time the courts give a declaratory remedy, including 
declarations of incompatibility under the under the Human Rights Act or more generally in judicial review, remedies are discretionary. So we do sometimes, not very often, but sometimes the courts will say, yes, this public body has acted unlawfully, but we're not going to grant you a remedy for, for whatever reason. So, so we have that gap between the interpretive role of the courts and its and their enforcement role. And when we you know when we apply that to constitutional conventions, I think you know we have to to recognize that the problems with constitutional conventions as a means of of constitutional regulation are not just about enforceability and maybe not even mainly about enforceability. So yes, they're not legally enforceable, they're politically enforceable. But I think a bigger problem is that they lack any means of independent adjudication. So when there is a dispute about what a convention means or what it requires, there is nowhere you can go, usually, for a ruling on whether or not the convention applies or whether it's been breached. Uh, and that was really the issue at stake in, in relation to the Seoul Convention in, in, in the first Miller case. The question was, well, would this would legislation to trigger Article 50 would that relate to devolved matters so as to engage the convention? The UK government said no. The devolved government said yes. The Supreme Court said, we're not going to decide that. And the effect of that was really just to hand the UK government a victory. The UK government just, well, okay, well, we can just insist on our interpretation. And we're, you know, we're just not going to seek devolved consent. So that really weakens the position of the devolved governments. And we've seen that play out later of the devolved institutions. We've seen that play out later in the, the Brexit process, where we've had a number of disputes over Sewell and where the UK government has just been able to insist that its interpretation is the correct one. So I don't see that there would be a contradiction between the court saying, well, we'll tell you what this convention means. We'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not that's very interesting. Yeah, that's that's a that's a nuance I hadn't, hadn't honestly hadn't thought about before. Go. <laughs> so um, the last question I have for you is speaking to what you suggested earlier about the Scottish and Welsh devolved administrations. Parliament is sovereign, and it has that sovereignty because it's at least partly because it's elected by the people. So, do you think parliamentary sovereignty and democracy are necessarily uh, intertwined? And then, if so, is the UK Parliament bound? constitutionally speaking, to do whatever the electorate says? Ah, so that's a good, that's a really good question. So, so I mentioned the, the Hoffman uh, dictum, yeah, par- parliamentary sovereignty derives from Parliament's representative character. It is usually defended on democratic grounds. That is a slightly problematic justification, historically, of course, because parliamentary sovereignty predates any meaningful sense in which parliament was a democratic body yes i guess it was more it was more representative than the crown certainly but it wasn't a democratic body as we would understand it in the modern sense and of course even today only one element of parliament is is democratic parliament remember has the, the, the legislation is passed by the crown in parliament it's the crown in parliament that enjoys parliamentary sovereignty the crown is not democratic the house of lords is not democratic 
only the Commons is 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 elected, and of course the Commons usually can insist on its on its will, but not absolutely invariably. So so it's problematic, and we could also question how democratic the House of Commons is, given that they're well known criticisms of the electoral system. Now we also saw a kind of different kind of challenge coming in the course of the of the Brexit process from the authority of the the EU referendum, where you know you've got a direct democratic decision of the people to leave the EU. Um, again, of course, some people argue that that was a problematic um, a problematic decision given the quality of the debate. But nevertheless, we had a, a, a clear uh, decision, and we had then a kind of I guess a gap between the rules of the constitution and the real the reality of the constitution. The rules of the constitution as declared in Miller, the referendum has no legal status. It's politically relevant only. But of course its political relevance was enormous and and when parliament came to uh, to to pass that the supreme court said was required, a majority of MPs and peers voted against their own personal views. They voted to endorse the referendum rather than to say, well, okay, this decision has been passed back to us now. Let's let's you know let let's vote in accordance with our own views of whether we should remain or leave the EU. And 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 the referendum continued obviously to condition what happened throughout um, throughout the Brexit process. Has that answered your question? Yeah, I think it has. I think it has. I think you've spoken very nicely to the the lack of democracy, perhaps, in Parliament. Just my finalising thought now. Are there any academics you would recommend on the topic on two levels, if you wouldn't mind? So first is the sort of entry level, perhaps getting into it, and then on the more detailed issues you discussed today. So on the entry level, I would thoroughly recommend that people check um, Professor Mark Elliott's blog called Public Law for Everyone. He has a, a series which he calls, I think, Public Law in a, in a Thousand Words or, so, or something like that, in which he takes concepts like parliamentary sovereignty and explains them very clearly. But more generally, he he writes extremely clearly and lucidly and authoritatively on a range of topics. So I definitely recommend his blog. Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of that <laughs> blog. I do really enjoy it. Whenever I need a, a quick entry into something, I, I start yeah, well, there. I and I do too. So there you go. Um, it's it's excellent. In terms of more advanced reading on this topic, so there's a couple of of things that might be worth reading. Jeffrey Goldsworthy, I mentioned earlier, his book on the sovereignty of Parliament is very. <laughs> Um, yeah, Professor Mike Gordon um, from Liverpool has also written a very interesting book on parliamentary sovereignty, and uh, Professor Alison Young has also written quite extensively on parliamentary sovereignty, uh, particularly to to the Human Rights Act. So, yeah, those are three authors I think are, are worth reading on this topic. I think that's gone very, very well. I want to thank you very, very much for giving us your time today on the topic of parliamentary sovereignty. It's our it's our first episode. It's my first time doing a podcast. So I just want to say a huge thank you. You've been absolutely stellar. Thank you. It's been fun. I'd like to extend our thanks here at LawPog to Aileen McCarg for giving us her time and a wonderful start to this legal lexicon series. You may have noted that parliamentary sovereignty, even in the traditional view, was tempered by the rule of law. 
This is another fundamental of the legal lexicon and will be our focus for our next episode in this series. We hope you found this episode useful and interesting and maybe even enjoyable. Until next time, you can check out our blog at the LawPod website or follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.